Two things were clear to the police. First, the driver had hit his head during the car accident and wandered into the forest. Second, they were now racing sub-freezing temperatures to save his life. Equipped with night vision technology, ground and helicopter teams were dispatched to sweep the area. Their search, unfortunately, failed to locate the man. But the police had one more thing to try. A drone equipped with an uncooled forward-looking infrared camera. A camera that weighed all of 260 grams. It allowed for speed, maneuverability, and vision that the crew otherwise didn't have. Not long after deploying it, they found the person they were looking for. And just in time, he was in the later stages of hypothermia and missing his shoes. This happened in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan on May 9th, 2013. And that drone was credited as being the first public service drone to save a human life. Roger Connor, a curator for the aeronautics department at the Smithsonian, believed it was such a historic moment that that drone is now a part of the museum's collection. This week, I'm speaking with the CEO of the company, Dragonfly Innovations, that built that drone, about how these public service drones are becoming an extension of humanitarian efforts, especially in Ukraine. I'm Jacqueline Swan, and this is Technality a podcast that explores how technology is shaping our future. And today, we're looking at the drones that are saving lives in Ukraine. Meet Cameron Chell. And I'm the CEO of Dragonfly Drones. He's a technology entrepreneur with about 30 years of experience under his belt from cloud computing to putting cameras on the outside of the space station, Cameron has been on the leading edge of many tech fields. Let's move into Dragonfly then. Do you wanna just talk about and what kind of sets you apart from other drone companies? Yeah, so Dragonfly, its founding was in public safety. And so uh, the first drone that Dragonfly manufactured was in 1998, and it ended up being used in search and rescue. And in fact, the first drone that was ever credited with saving a human life was a Dragonfly drone. And today that drone sits on permanent display in the Smithsonian. Dragonfly's roots is definitely in public safety and public service. Uh, so its drones have been used, you know, to do search and rescue missions, primarily using thermal cameras to look for heat signatures for lost hikers or accident victims or natural disaster victims, things like that. But it's also been used for accident reconstruction, a homicide investigations, evidence collecting, right through to today we have drones that use a particular AI that we developed where the cameras can actually read the vital signs of the survivors on the ground. You know, it's a totally proprietary technology to Dragonfly, uh, but it really is indicative of, you know, where the industry is going in terms of the utility that drones in general are bringing to areas like public safety. If you're interested in buying a drone, Dragonfly might be a bit out of your price range. Of course, once you learn what these drones are capable of, you'll understand why you won't find them at Best Buy for $500. The cost can vary as as low as, you know, about $10,000 and upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars. A, a typical drone uh, that that we sell is, a, is usually about a $30,000 uh, type of drone. These are professional grade, they're encrypted. 
their uh, industrial strength, their, you know, quote unquote, all weather, and they're delivering mission critical, either data or services uh, to the customer or to the user. 30,000 being the average is pretty interesting for what it's able to accomplish. As you brought up about the first civilian drone to be credited with saving a human life, it was able to do that because it had more maneuverability than the people and the helicopters going out with night vision goggles. And like those helicopters are hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's been more instances of these drones being able to find people in search and rescue situations that helicopters can't. Certainly over time here, more and more, and, and now it's becoming the majority of search and rescue teams, they have drones where they can use the thermal signatures or the optical sensors or, or even loudspeakers in order to communicate with survivors or all kinds of different applications. Those are probably the least expensive out there. And then they kind of go up from there. And so the the ROI or the cost benefit analysis on them is is extreme. I mean, it, it costs tens of thousands of dollars an hour to run a helicopter. You know, so for you know, four or five hours of operations, you know, you've you've paid for your drone program for the year. The Saskatchewan story from the beginning, the first instance of a public sector drone being used to save a civilian, was from 2013. Since then, the adoption of drones has grown. As Cameron put it, the return on investment for drones is oftentimes worth it. Response times are faster, gathering data about a situation is easier, and they're capable of quickly performing dangerous tasks. And right now in Ukraine, these drones are being pushed to their limits, making way for new innovations and uses for the technology. But before we can get to what's happening in Ukraine, we have to look at the public sector drone use in Texas. A little bit of background, there's an organization uh, or it's a company in Texas called Cold Chain Delivery Services. And they're standing up a first responder drone delivery system in Texas with the EMS services down there. And what that really means is that two kind of drone scenarios. One, there's a 911 call that comes in. First thing that happens is a drone is, is dispatched along with the trucks that are rolling at the same time data has shown that it takes an average of about 108 seconds for a drone to actually get on site to a response area and then immediately provide observation as the trucks and and the folks are rolling in so is it a false alarm you know is it an escalating situation is there a crowd you know how serious is it? are the injuries you know do we need more resources in there is there traffic issues those types of things are like literally within 108 seconds you know, the people that are rolling out of the emergency stations are, are starting to get that intel. The second scenario is they can't get to a spot, but it might be, you know, somebody needs an AED and the ambulances are going are to take 18 minutes or whatever to get there. A drone can get there in four or two or whatever the case is. And so those are the two use case scenarios that are being stood up in Texas right now. During Cold Chain's test of the Dragonfly drones, they were receiving positive press coverage. And this coverage eventually caught the attention of Revive Soldiers Ukraine, which would lead to Dragonfly sending these drones overseas. An organization called Revive Soldiers Ukraine, which is a US-based NGO working in the Ukraine, contacted uh, Cold Chain and asked, how can we get some of these drones because we've got people in, in cities that are besieged or areas that we can't get ambulances into or can't get personnel into that need insulin or need pharmaceuticals, and we just can't get it to them. That was the impetus and, and the start of us uh, having the opportunity to work in Ukraine with Revive Soldiers Ukraine. From demining fields to search and rescue, after the break, we'll look at just how these drones are currently saving lives in Ukraine, both now and 
in the future. How many drones do you have on the ground over there right now? 15. There might be a few more than that. And every two weeks, there's basically a, a new shipment of three to five drones that are going into theater. It's interesting because each shipment that's going in is going in with increased capabilities. You know, more cameras, more sensors, better communications, longer ranges, things that the operators have been able to learn as they're working in this very tough environment, basically teaching us back what they need and us building those features into the drones. We donated the first three drones into theater. And, and part of that was obviously it's just the right thing to do. Uh, we were honored to be able to do it, privileged, in fact. And since that time, Revive Soldiers Ukraine uh, has been purchasing drones, which we, we basically do at cost you know, for this particular cause. And then we had a bunch of uh, shareholders that stood up and said, we need to do more. We, and, and so they started contributing money and or buying drones to send as well. And out of that, we actually had some shareholders form Drone Aid Ukraine. And so that has been providing some financial support to, to get additional drones into the area as well. Now, with this small fleet of public sector drones equipped with a myriad of equipment for various circumstances, the Ukrainian people and Drone Aid Ukraine have been able to execute quite a few initiatives. So there's a couple of initiatives. So with Revive Soldiers Ukraine, we're actually you know delivering what we call our medical response drone, which is this drone that can carry up to 30 pounds of temperature sensitive products like pharmaceuticals or insulins or vaccines or you know critical supplies like that. The other initiative that has come out of this is using drones to detect mines. And so we're working with a number of different government agencies over there and an organization called DEFC, D-E-F hyphen C, to actually use drones to detect mines and speed up the demining process. Ukrainian territory, especially around the capital, is littered with landmines. And it's predicted that cleaning the country's lands of these explosives will take five to seven years. And that's if the war stops in the near future. And obviously, demining is a dangerous process, which is why it's also slow work. You don't accidentally want to set one off, even if you're wearing protective equipment. But you don't want to miss a landmine either. This is where Dragonfly's drones have really started to stand out in Ukraine. Imagine, if you will, a couple of vans pulling up into an area that has unexploded ordnance in it or has been mined and a small fleet of drones being launched, you know, a small fleet being three to seven drones and those drones flying that area and mapping it. And so they're using sensors like uh, everything from uh, magnetometers to hyperspectral or multispectral cameras, uh, thermal cameras, sometimes uh, potentially uh, we're experimenting now with ground penetrating radar, uh, LIDAR systems for sure. And they, they take all the anomalies that are captured from these drones that have incredible sensors and, and can do it from an angle, obviously an altitude that can't be done by you know a human walking through a field. And it maps out all of those anomalies and then provides a map back to the demining crews who then have a more, you know, hopefully informed position to be able to start their demining uh, work. What's also important about this is that, you know, we have incredible data collection. So we're seeing all the different types of ordnance. We're able to start to classify them. We're able to start to see patterns emerging, you know, all the type of stuff that helps the process of speeding up 
the demining. You know, for every day of war that's occurring in the Ukraine, there's 30 days of demining work that's required. And at present, I've seen some reports that are, you know, calling for it's going to take over 20 years. If the war were to stop today, it's going to take over 20 years to demine Ukraine. So th this is a really important initiative. It has obviously, you know, terrible and catastrophic human toll, both on combatants and on civilians. But it also has an incredible economic tool where you see entire areas of uh, Ukraine's, you know, very important agricultural industry just crippled because they can't go into the fields to plant or to harvest. The work that is being done with these drones is incredible. However, throughout the conversation, my mind kept returning to the connotation that drones have in war zones. We're used to hearing about how this tech is used for military purposes. But here, they're being used to save the people of Ukraine and help rebuild their home. Personally, though, I can't help but feel that I would be wary of a drone in a war zone. And as I discovered in my research, I wasn't alone in that thinking. And I actually found an interview that you did while on the ground in Ukraine. You said when a drone goes up in the air, the first thing anybody wants to do, whatever side of the conflict you're on, is to shoot it, which I would agree with just in terms of the connotation of a drone in a war zone. I would kind of love to hear your thoughts on that um, and just even what the time in Ukraine meant to you in terms of watching how the drones were operating and what they were accomplishing. The first thing that just really grabbed me is the people like it can't be overstated that these folks are fighting our war. Their fortitude and resilience and ingenuity is absolutely incredible. But on that note, when you put a drone up and because of these initial connotations, which are valid, you don't know whose it is, what side it's, you know, working for, what the purpose is, that type of stuff. And, you know, <laughs> war zone, you know, cautions everything. So, you know, if, if it's not a coordinated mission or effort, the premise is to, to take it out. Now, what's interesting is that we are starting to see, you know, a bit more coordination and caution around that. So, Things like the identification of types of drones, the coordination of territorial forces with defense forces, with relief agencies and all that type of stuff to, to say, hey, don't shoot that down or, or know that that's not a combatant. There's at least an awareness of that happening now. So it, it is interesting that drones for good, if you will, and how they can be used it's so impactful that it, that it is having that kind of counter against that, hey, these things are only bad or they're only used for combat. So I'm, I'm curious, where exactly do these regulations stand right now? I guess just in Canada. So the kind of the key regulation for the commercial drone industry really to be uh, accelerating is uh, around what we call beyond visual line of sight. So BV loss. And so being able to be in you know one location and fly a drone in another location without there being an observer or, or a physical pilot within visual sight of that particular drone. And that's definitely where things are moving. And that's where the ROI on this whole industry will really just start to skyrocket. And the first areas that we're seeing that unfold in is in public safety, you know, 911 response, you know, drone is a first responder and things like that, because the, the ROI and saving lives or reducing resourcing costs to save those lives and be better public service are just so prevalent. So that's where a lot of the focus uh, is happening. Now, interestingly enough, that also is a great place to uh, see our civil liberties uh, protected. A, a drone that's you know going to a 911 call and then returning and somebody calls and says, hey, you know, there's a drone that, you know, that just flew over my house four times today, you know, because of an emergency or a disaster or whatever. And, uh, and I'm uncomfortable with this. And what's it doing? Those departments, they've already got fail safes in there. They've already got, you know, the drones don't record unless they're on site. 
everything is recorded and available, you know, on transparency records for the public to see. All of these things are being considered and built into these systems. And I think it's a fantastic proving ground for then how the rest of the commercial industry will also be able to conduct itself. So, you know, you might have drones delivering packages or or doing uh, heavy lift industrial work or whatever the case is, but there will be rules and guidelines, not just around the operations of, of the drones and the control of the airspace, but also about the sensors that are on board and what can be used and the records that have to be kept, you know, proving that what has been done and hasn't been done and hasn't been recorded and isn't available or all of those types of things. And so it's immensely complex, but it's similar to several of other industries that have also emerged, you know, rules around cell phone privacy. We've got rules around the internet privacy. The, the airline industry has flight paths that it can take. You know, we're not headed to a spot where the drone industry can prosper and really grow to its potential uh, unless those things uh, are in place. And I, I do believe that the regulators are highly aware of this uh, and, and the drone industry is acutely aware of this. And, and I'll tell you, most people within the drone industry are big, big civil liberty advocates. So uh, I see this unfolding positively, but I just think it's gonna just take some time. So alongside societies becoming comfortable with the idea of drones, necessary regulations that are needed for a disruptive technology like this one that is already raising concerns about privacy and security. And like any other disruptive industry, society will take time to adopt it. In this case, especially Western societies. We don't see drones as much because we have rules and regulations around the use of them. So while we might be able to identify what a drone looks like in the sky, it's still not necessarily commonplace to see in our day-to-day. However, In countries with laxer policies, there's already been a rise in drone use and innovations for what this technology is capable of doing for society. You know, kind of like cellular has, you know, kind of leapfrogged in less developed uh, nations or economies in a place like you know, North America, you know, it, copper wire running everywhere. And, you know, we had our landlines and phones and homes and which was a great convenience. But as that technology and cellular and wireless technology evolved, we see other nations and economies and territories and areas be able to just leapfrog and and be able to join the, the global community, you know, because they've got access to that uh, communication. And I think you're going to see the same thing with drones. Like some of the the best and most impressive innovation right now is happening outside of Canada and the United States. It's happening in places like Latin America and Southeast Asia and Africa and, 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 and Eastern Europe, because it, they just don't have that same restrictiveness around the infrastructure that they have to consider at this point. And so I think we're, you know, I think we'll see a lot of innovation continue to come out of those types of areas. You know, I think like like Poland and the Ukraine and parts of Africa, I mean, what they are doing with drones right now is absolutely game changing. And so I, I think it's important for us you know, to note within North America that there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from those areas. And, and hopefully our regulation uh, can speed up. And I'm, I'm not complaining about the pace that it's going at all. But hopefully that regulation and our society's understanding of drones can it can leapfrog into where the rest of the world is going. Now, you know, I think we'll end up being leaders in drones because we've got this developed economy and there's so much upside and all the rest of it, you know, by drone usage. And it's the biggest potential market uh, for drones and, and drone benefit out there. But at this point, I think there's a lot for us to learn in other areas of the world.
what is Ukraine doing that has you so excited about what we could leap off for drones? Well, I, I th they're using drones, right? They're using drones for absolutely everything, whether it's, uh, you know, communications repeaters or delivery of humanitarian aid or, or delivery of packages or whether it's mine detection. It's a force multiplier. And everybody is into it. Like it's just been so prolifically impactful in Ukraine in the conflict that they're in right now that quote unquote, everybody, you know, knows how to operate a drone. They know how to get their hands on a drone. They're, they're familiar with it. So they think about drones in a different way. They're how they apply, you know, the technology is, is really what's fascinating to me. And, and it's a perspective that you don't get when you're, you know, kind of stuck in your box about, you know, how things have to be in a very established, safe, you know, free society and economy where, you know, they're relying on these drones to keep their freedom. It's not just their eyes in the sky. It's almost an extension of their body to go into. I, 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 you couldn't, it couldn't be said better. I just, that, that is absolutely true. And everyone kind of having an idea of how to operate them too, just kind of shows how prevalent that tech is over there and also how they've begun to welcome it into their lives. Because it's also not just protect or um, defend themselves. It's to protect their homeland and like get it back to a state where they can start building again yeah. like as you said sweeping for mines is incredibly difficult and it's going to take forever for them to demine that yeah. the country and you know rebuilding the country drones will play a critical part you know of mapping and surveying which drones are incredibly efficient at i'm really excited to see uh what that innovative people and culture come up with as as they you know, hopefully sooner than later, you know, move into a rebuilding phase. And how prevalent do you think drone tech will become in the next 10 years? Do you think that people will be a lot more accepting of it? Do you think it will be more widely used? Will I see it walking down the streets in terms of like emergencies? I think we're, we're you know, probably looking a decade out before it's pervasive. Uh, and I would say pervasive, you know, even on a psychological level where, you know, it's commonplace, like there, there are drone lanes, they're being flown. It's not uncommon to see AEDs coming into use. It's, uh, you know, the expectation is that, you know, our public safety will be using drones. There'll be great policy in place, giving us a level of comfort. There's rules and regs and, you know, our civil liberties are protected. And I think that between, first of all, the FAA rules and the airspace guidelines, and which are taking an extraordinary long time for all the right reasons to put in place, are also, you know, kind of coinciding with society's types of acceptance uh, of drones and, and how they can be used and why they're being used. It's coming along, but it's going to continue to take some time to, to, to happen. But, you know, kind of like the internet, you know, it's taking twice or three times as long to kind of grab hold but it's 10,000 times more, you know, prevalent and pervasive in our lives than we ever would have imagined. And and I think you'll see the same thing with, uh, you know, drones and automation and robots and, and things like that. They're going to be a very, very valuable part of our life. Before the call ends, anywhere you want to send people, if people want to find you. Yeah, so uh, dragonfly.com, and it's D-R-A-G-A-N fly.com. Uh, Droneaid.com uh, uh, would be fantastic if uh, if anybody's uh, inclined uh, to support the efforts of uh, Ukrainian uh, people uh, and their fight for freedom. And uh, and also just, uh, you know, if, if you're interested to, to become a shareholder or partner or, or participant with us, uh, we are a NASDAQ listed company and uh, our symbol is DPRO. As I mentioned, drones are a disruptive technology. There are reasons to be concerned, especially around privacy and security. These are all questions and concerns that we'll have to start answering in the next few years, if they haven't started yet. Drones have proven that they have more of a function in war zones than just 
committing atrocities. They can also be used to save lives and rebuild countries. Thank you for listening to Technality, a Narcity Media podcast. It's hosted and produced by me, Jacqueline Swan. I'd like to thank Cameron Chell for joining me this week. You can check out his company at dragonfly.com. That's dragon spelt D-R-A-G-A-N. To never miss out on where your future is headed, subscribe to Technality wherever you listen to your podcast. And for more content, check out Technality Socials.